0: Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Cities in History podcast. For the first time I'm going to talk about a particular city, uh, discussing Havana. And this is also the first time I'm going to use illustrations, so I hope this works. If you are listening to this on a computer or on an iPod with a screen, you should be able to see a picture with each of the different things that I discuss. I'm not going to talk to you about the various bars claiming that Ernest Hemingway drank there, but how you can glimpse some elements of the city's fascinating and varied past. Havana is one of the cities uh, that I have visited several times for research, because it's going to be featured in my next book. And when I first started thinking about doing this podcast, I was sitting by the Malecon, looking across to the Morro Fort, across the entrance to Havana's harbor. At any time of day, you'll see people along the Malecon, just talking or sunbathing or sometimes snorkeling off the rocks below. On a hot day, it's a pleasant place to sit, as the ocean breeze is very refreshing. And it's part of Havana's culture. So we'll start there, looking at these fortifications first built around 500 years ago to protect the city from pirates. Havana itself was first established here in 1519, You've got to remember, at that time, cigars and rum didn't exist, and it served simply as a hub in the Spanish Empire. By the last quarter of the 16th century, it was a rendezvous point for supply and trade ships from um, New Spain to Seville, and for the fleet returning to Spain with silver, goods from China and the East Indies, which had been brought across the Pacific from Manila via Acapulco, as well as the silver and gold, hardwoods, pineapples, cocoa, and assorted other trade goods from the Americas. So this city, which originally, originally somewhat experimental, being established less than 30 years after the first voyage of Columbus, grew to be very wealthy, particularly once sugar began to be grown on the island. And its fortifications were not enough, though, because in 1762 the city was captured by British forces. It's not as though Britain's designs on the city were in any way a secret at this point. Twenty years earlier, in 1740, Gentleman's Magazine had offered helpful instructions for attacking the city. They even provided a map, topographical markings of the surrounding area, key buildings shown, description of the city. In Cuba, we are told, the air is more temperate and healthy than in most American islands, and the soil extremely fertile yielding abundance of all those spices and other commodities produced in the West Indian islands. The Havana is reckoned to be the strongest city in the Spanish West Indies, the port inaccessible to an enemy. But the town may be bombarded from the sea by some ships that dare venture near the forts, and if possession be got of one of the hills to the east to attack the place by land at the same time, it could not hold out many days. And indeed, the attack on Havana was carefully planned, with 50 ships sailing from Portsmouth headed from Cuba. The attack involved 14,000 British troops, including 4,000 from North America, primarily from New York. Local resistance did not stand much of a chance. The celebration in Britain and in Britain's American colonies which greeted the victory demonstrates the extent of popular interest in the events of the war and understanding of Havana's importance as a global city even at that stage. In the North American colonies, everyone was proud of the success and there were cannon fired and church bells rung in Boston and in Charlestown. In New York, a celebratory dinner was hosted by the governor. A salute of 21 guns was fired from St. George and there were fireworks that night. Merchants from throughout the British Atlantic world descended on Havana, eager to trade. And in the North American colonies, There was celebration not just at access to Cuba, but access to a market for their flour and other items. Because at this time, Britain's American colonies were supposed to only trade with each other, so the New Englanders had to get their molasses, which was a huge import at this period, from Jamaica or Barbados. The residents of Havana, meanwhile, bought everything, because the goods being offered were cheaper than what they could usually get. And their tastes for these things lingered. Archaeologists have found the remains of various trade items in old houses from the 18th and 19th centuries, showing that predominantly the items these people were buying were British. Now, after 1762, a lot of these things were coming through North American ports, but there was certainly a taste among Cubans for items that were available in the British Empire. And this period after the British invasion was only ten months. But it in a sense gave the residents of Havana a chance to peek over the geopolitical wall and discover what life would be like outside the Spanish Empire and what commercial opportunities existed for them, particularly with the British colonies to the north. And this was a key turning point for Havana, because even when it was brought back under Spanish control, their identity had in a way been redefined, away from being Spanish to being Cuban. Economically, the Haitian Revolution of 1791 was the next great boost Cuba received, essentially removing their major competitor in the sugar trade and sending an influx of French refugees. Cuba became the world's top producer of tropical products, and particularly sugar. Walking around the city today, you can see some of the remnants of this stage of prosperity. The historic center was declared a World Heritage Site by UNESCO in 1982. You can also see elegant houses from the 1920s and 30s, some in the Art Deco ocean liner style, and the high-rise buildings, mostly from the mid-century building boom. Very few tall buildings have appeared since the 1950s. In the colonial times, the center of administration was in the Plaza des Armas. If you go there today, You'll find second-hand booksellers with many books about Cuba, and the square itself is full of trees and flowers. Next to the square is the City Museum. Originally, this was the Palace of the Colonial Administrators, and you'll find inside rooms recreated in the style of the 19th century. Although it's called the Museum of the City, it's really the Museum of Spanish colonialism. And the building itself has a great, graceful atmosphere, with a shady courtyard. Outside, you'll notice on the ground the wooden paving on the street, which was a technique before road sealing was introduced in tropical countries, um, where there was going to be a lot of rain. To avoid mud, I mean, wood was the one way to allow drainage, and so that the, the streets wouldn't get completely gummed up. But Havana intended to be a, ahead of the curve in terms of technology. In 1837, it became the first city in the Spanish-speaking world to have railway transportation. Gas lighting arrived in 1844. And so by the time of its independence from Spain, Cuba was really going places. Independence, of course, came along with the Spanish-American War and a fractious relationship with the United States that has existed ever since. The U.S. battleship, the Maine, was blown up near the entrance to Havana Harbor. And some of its victims are still down there. There is a memorial which has become a target over the years for anti-American sentiment. And after independence, of course in Havana, establishing a new state meant establishing new state buildings. The beautiful structures of this period, including the Presidential Palace and the Capitolio, demonstrate the country's sugar wealth and also fine craftsmanship. They stake a claim to a particular tropical grandeur which remains unmatched anywhere. This was wealth created from unfree labor, though, with slavery only abolished in 1886. Nonetheless, looking around the city at the buildings of the late 19th and early 20th century, it is easy to see why it was once called the Paris of the Caribbean. The Presidential Palace now houses the Museum of the Revolution, where you can see many exhibits about how Fidel Castro and his comrades came to power in the late 1950s. In the first half of the 20th century, Cuba got an additional boost to its prosperity with prohibition in North America. Of course, the island's prosperity was not evenly distributed, but it became a desirable vacation spot for people from the U.S. who wanted to go somewhere they could drink, and it became a top destination for cruise ships heading out from Florida. It was at this period that the grandest of Cuban hotels was built, the Hotel Nacional, in 1930, which is still one of the top hotels to stay in. It really has a lovely position with a view out over the ocean from the same period as the old Bacardi building this lovely art deco marble. Across the harbour from Havana is the small town of Regla which hosts the church of Our Lady of Regla, who is the patron saint of the bay. The ferry ride costs only one Cuban peso, and it's a hot seatless vessel for this short journey. And your bags will be searched before boarding, more assiduously than they might even be at JFK, because some years ago someone attempted to hijack one of these ferries, demanding to be taken to Florida. When you get to Regla, you can visit the church, which seems to have an unending stream of visitors. And the large silk cotton tree outside has significance for adherents of Santeria, and you'll see people performing rites by the water. Santeria is everywhere in Cuba. I can't claim to know much about it. I haven't generally asked people about their practices, but some have been very happy to tell me who their personal saint is, and what that saint has done to help them. I've yet to meet a white person who claims to be an adherent, but most that I spoke to were wary of its power. You will see offerings to saints outside houses or floating in the water, and I've had pointed out to me certain sites that were held to have particular significance. Meanwhile, the other thing you'll notice in Havana is that cars seem to come in three kinds, 1950s American, all chrome and fins, some clunking Soviet-era larders and scotas, and some very new, very pricey examples of German engineering. But you can't overlook the fact that for locals life is hard. Government rations are insufficient. The one thing that is available in good supply, enough to fulfill calorific needs, is sugar. And the appearance of some people on the street reflects the effect of such a diet. Diabetes is a growing problem. As my friend Gloria put it, you have to be a magician to get all of the things that you need. In fact, when I've been in Cuba, the longest line I saw was not waiting for food, but outside the Spanish embassy with people queuing to get visas. The huge volume of migration from Spain in the late 19th and early 20th centuries means that many Cubans have a Spanish-born parent or grandparent, and proving such ancestry can be the way to get a Spanish passport and a ticket out of Cuba. Some people come to Havana as tourists, seeking some kind of frozen 1950s, and it certainly also attracts those who want to experience the glory of the revolution. When I first visited, I noticed the number of older visitors carrying passports from the former communist countries in Eastern Europe. Cuba was once a vacation destination for the elites of the Soviet bloc, and perhaps this is a trip down memory lane. You will see around the city plenty of murals not only to Castro and the revolution, but to earlier heroes of Cuban nationalism, such as José Martí. Today, many of the beautiful old buildings in the city are controlled by the state and used as public housing. It's nice that they're inhabited rather than preserved as artefacts. It means that the historic core of the city is living and pulsing rather than a sterile museum piece. I like the fact that the city is full of life, but it is hard to see these buildings in such tragic states of disrepair, although their faded elegance has a beauty of its own. Graham Greene once described the city as a city to visit, not a city to live in. In many ways Cuba has been in the right place at the right time, and the right place at the wrong time in history, and the island's strange fortunes are somehow etched on this city. In a way, it's the country's beating heart. For more information on this series, you can visit the website citiesinhistory.com and you can follow on Twitter at Cities in History. Thank you for listening.